0: Yes, Lord, we do thank you. We thank you for your goodness, your kindness to us. Thank you for sending your spirit to be with us. Thank you for the fact that we are not alone. Yes, Jesus. Lord, thank you for all that you did. And I, I can't help but be reminded as we read your word, not just the way you protected us, but I'm awestruck by the way you protected your disciples. When you walked with them, you were so good, so kind, such a guardian of who they were. You were kind when they needed kindness. You rebuked them when they needed a rebuke. You gave them what they needed so that they might be safe with you. So that as you said, of those whom you have given me, Father, I have lost not one. Thank you for your ability to do that. And we claim that same ability of you to do that today. That of those whom the Father has given you, you will lose not one. Lord, help us to be warned by that. To look at our own faith with open eyes. And at the same time, to trust in your holding power. That you bring us to salvation. It is through you we even find our perseverance. To remain in the faith. Lord, to be disconnected from you, like John 15 says, is to be a dead branch. Help us stay connected to you. We need your help. Keep us in the vine. Help us abide in you. Remain in you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles tonight, we're in John 18 first verse of John 18. Tonight's a short passage. As I, I decided to go through uh, Jesus's passion piece by piece, and so tonight's a short passage. It's the arrest of Jesus. It's only 11 verses, but we'll go through that and, and see in those 11 verses, uh, even just in his arrest, what Jesus was doing for his disciples. How he was standing for them. As I I read this, I thought about the fact that our Lord was arrested. Now I don't I don't have any personal experience with that. Maybe uh, I I kind of doubt there's anyone here who has that experience. But um, there are many people in this world who've had that experience. And what a unique thing! What a unique thing that our Lord has a blotted past, according to the legal record. It reminded me of our call to look for people's redemption. We don't know people's story. Uh, It's easy to look at some blot on their past and make a snap judgment. But I'm reminded that our innocent, sinless Lord was arrested, that he had a trial in which he was convicted for a crime he did not commit. That should speak to us about a legal system, a justice system that is fair, and that is a goal to strive for, isn't it? There are many people who are probably innocent who have been arrested and convicted, in fact, we look at the evidence you know, sociologically we know that's true and yet that blot stays with them and you know even for those who have committed the crime who are convicted rightly we as a people we as a, as a church are the only group of people that actually believe people can change the world looks at people and says they never change. Who you are is who you will always be, and we can look at your past conduct and predict what you're going to do in the future. No one ever really changes. That's what the world says. And yet we believe, we believe that the Spirit of God, when He enters someone, changes their heart at such a fundamental level that they no longer desire to do evil, but they desire to do the will of God. They desire to do things that please God. We are the people who say everyone deserves a second chance, that there can be a change, that redemption is real, that we believe people can repent, can be transformed through God's power. And I reflected on that as I read this, the arrest of Jesus. The shame that comes with that. To have a record. Verse 1, John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words... That's all the discourse we just read. John chapter 13, all the way to 17, when he had spoken those words, this great final discourse with his disciples. It says he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. The Kidron is to the east of the city of Jerusalem. It's a valley. It's Jerusalem surrounded by valleys. Why in the Psalms they always say you ascend to Jerusalem, right? You always are going up if you go to the holy city because it's surrounded by valleys. And so on the east side of the city, when they go down into the ravine, it's called the Kidron. And as you go across, you come up to the Mount of Olives, right? The Mount of Olives is where the traditional site of the Garden of Gethsemane is, right? You've probably heard that before here in john he just says it's a garden he doesn't say it's gethsemane this specific place but he says it's a garden and so they're on the mount of olives and they go across the valley and up onto the mount of olives and, and clearly this is a place that jesus had gone many times how do we know that because in verse 2 it says this judas also was betraying him knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas has some understanding, whether this was the plan of Jesus beforehand or not, whatever the case, Judas has some insight into the fact that Jesus would go there. Maybe that was the plan. Maybe after the Passover meal, they knew they would go to this garden. Whatever the case, Judas knew where Jesus would be. And so he begins his work, doesn't he? Jesus, remember, sent Judas out saying, what you have to do, do quickly. And Judas does. So Judas is coming to complete his work. What is his work? A ghastly work of betraying Jesus, the Lord of glory. Verse 3, Judas, having received the cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns, and torches, and weapons. This throng of people comes to arrest Jesus. More than likely, <clears throat> you might have in your translation the Roman cohort. I, I think that's unlikely. It's unlikely uh, that word is, is translated as Roman cohort. It does mean a cohort, and later on in time, it actually came to be a technical term for a battalion of, of Romans. But that battalion was always consisting of 600 men. Very unlikely that they sent 600 men to arrest Jesus. But the word also was used in the earlier time, around the time John was written, just to refer to a a group of of, of soldiers, right? And so it's most likely that it's not, the Romans actually probably weren't involved at this point. And, And I think another piece of evidence for that is, Pilate doesn't seem to know anything about Jesus when he speaks to him. As we see later on in John 18, Pilate is unaware that this man's going to be brought to him. So most likely, it's, it's actually that this is just officers or, or soldiers from the chief priest, right? They're, they're the temple guard, maybe. And they come out to find Jesus, and it says they're led by Judas. Judas is leading them. Judas is there leading these people to betray Jesus so as these people come out here the irony is of course it's the middle of night isn't it it's the middle of night it's the dark hour remember what it said that earlier when Judas went out Judas went out and it was night referring to the darkness of his act so it's the middle of night and here's the irony they come to arrest the light of the world. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. They come out in the midst of darkness to destroy the light. So they come with their lanterns and torches and weapons. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. Judas has made his choice. He stands with the guards, not with his Lord. And when Jesus had said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is interesting because, again, the synoptics show us a different side of what's going on. The other Gospels show us a different piece. Notice Judas's kiss is never mentioned in the Gospel of John. The synoptics all report it, that Judas came up and kisses him on the cheek. And what does Jesus say? Just that tragic, tragic line. Do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Here, John is showing us something different. From the synoptics, we see the agony of Jesus' humanity, don't we? We see the agony of someone so close to you, killing you, killing you with an act of kindness, or supposed kindness, huh? Oh, he comes up and kisses him on the cheek, but it's to identify him so that they might arrest him. But in John, he tells us something different. What is he portraying here? John is consistent. Jesus is in control of everything that happens. Everything that happens, Jesus is allowing to happen. See, John wants to portray that this is his choice. Remember what he said in John 10? What he said in John 10 was, no one takes my life. I lay it down. And I can take it up again. John wants to theologically communicate to us. Jesus is in control of all of this. What's it say? We already read it. Jesus knew what was coming upon him. And unlike the kiss that we see in the synoptic, showing that side of things, here Jesus says, whom do you seek? He actually is the one initiating the contact with the guards. He's the one saying, why are you here? Whom do you seek? So they respond, we're seeking Jesus. He says, I am. Now, we've talked about this several times throughout this gospel. I am, ego, eimi. is just the Greek standard way to say I am he or I am she, right? I am the person. So it could be innocuous, right? It could just be, I am he. And that's usually how translations have it. That's how my translation has it. I am he. I am the one you're seeking. But again, John has all of these nods to who Jesus really is. And ego me is the exact translation of the name of Yahweh in Isaiah. So Jesus says, I am, and we know that John's probably alluding to the divine name. Jesus says, I am. What's more evidence for that is that at the divine name, all the guards draw back and fall to the ground. Now, what does that mean? It could mean many things. One is that obviously the divine name is powerful. And remember that regardless of of what you think about uh, their goodness or badness or whatever you might think about these guards, they're Jews. They are Jews. So, they approach someone who, let me remind you, earlier they already went to arrest, didn't they? And when they went to arrest Jesus from the Pharisees, what did they say? They didn't arrest him. They went back to the Pharisees. And they're like, why didn't you arrest him? They said, we've never heard anyone speak like this man speaks. So one could be they sensed the authority of Jesus. They feel the weight of his authority, and they draw back, and they fall to the ground. Two could be, they are still awestruck at hearing someone say the divine name. That is not something Jewish people say. Right? They are taken aback. Another option is, maybe they think he's going to be struck down. He took the Lord's name and said it. Maybe they think Jesus found to be killed. You know, maybe he's about to be struck down. He's not, of course, because the divine name is his name, isn't it? Whatever the case, I, I think there's a lot of evidence that that could have really happened. It, it really did happen. That they drew back and fell to the ground. Maybe it was supernatural, maybe not. But I think there's a lot of ways to explain it, that it would explain why they would draw back from hearing the divine name. That Jesus says when he says, I am. So they're taken aback. For whatever reason, they fall to the ground. And Jesus again initiates a second time. They fall to the ground and he repeats to them, Whom do you seek? It's almost like they've been struck dumb or something. right? Whom do you seek? And they repeat the same thing. Jesus, the Nazarene is whom we seek. Jesus answers them, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Now remember, this passage has already told us that Jesus knows what's about to transpire. He knows what's coming upon him. What is Jesus doing here? How is He fulfilling that word? He's saving His disciples from death in this moment, literally, right? Not the spiritual, uh, the grand action that Jesus is about to say, uh, about to do by paying for our sins and dying on the cross. He's literally saving them from being arrested and executed with Him. So He says, if If it's me whom you seek, let these other ones go their way. Because otherwise, they too would have been arrested with Jesus. They too would have faced execution. Jesus, in that moment, defends his disciples. He protects them. He makes sure that his word is fulfilled, that of those whom you have given me, I lost not one by letting them flee for their lives. And remember, Jesus letting them flee for their lives is actually how Jesus is left alone. Jesus saves their lives at the cost of being completely alone. And of course, in Jesus' words, he says, but I am never alone, for my Father is always with me. That's what he said earlier in John. So he lets them leave so that they have the freedom to go, and he's left all alone as these come to arrest him. Peter's there, though. Peter has his own plan, doesn't he? Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus turned to Peter and said, Put the sword in the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Peter courageously attacks these guards. I'm sure they're outnumbered. I'm sure they have no hope of victory. And yet Peter with a sword in his hand has a lot of bravery he goes to defend his teacher he goes to kill those who would come to arrest his lord and sets us up with a contrast a contrast with peter who is so brave in this moment with a sword in his hand <clears throat> is the same peter when he has no way to defend himself denies his savior it's literally a few verses away. Peter jumps up with a sword to defend his master, and without it, he denies he even knows him. Unlike Jesus, Peter is the the foil to Jesus in this story, isn't he, because Jesus lays down his life so that his disciples may flee and escape, and Peter takes up the the sword to try and free his master. And what's Jesus' response? It's Peter, Peter, you're misguided again. Don't you understand? This is the cup the Father brought me to. Put your sword away. Should I not drink the cup the Father has for me? This is what was intended. This is what I've been talking about this whole time to you, Peter, that this would happen. I'm going to drink the cup the Father has for me. And that cup is the cup of death. The cup of death. He's going to die. Jesus is heading towards drinking that cup, even in this moment. Peter has different plans for Jesus. And it's often the case that we have our own plans. We have our own thoughts about what God should do. And yet we know that God has higher plans, better plans. We're reminded in this moment with Peter of how often we can do that. We think we know the right way. Jesus, I'm here to defend you. I'm here to fight on your behalf. And Jesus says, no, I'm heading towards death, Peter. It's where I'm going. We have to remember to listen for God's voice and where he's leading us. Where he's going, where he is for us. Because all too often we can get ahead of him. We can have our own way, our own designs, our own plans. Well, he has different ones. When Jesus does this, he is a model for us, isn't he? A model of what it means to submit to the Father's will. We know from the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus struggled with accepting this cup. It was painful to him. It grieved him. In fact, he asked that the cup might pass from him. But at the end of his prayer, at the end of his prayer, what does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. He convinces, he he commits himself, commits himself to doing the Father's will. That's where he lands. That's where he ends, even though it's going to cost him greatly. Jesus is the model for us. That We have to follow where God's voice leads. We have to follow where God's plans lead. Even when there might be grief, even when there might be pain, even when there might be death at the end of that road, Jesus is the the reminder that we follow the Father's will. My prayer is that we will all do that. We would all listen to the voice of God when he speaks to us. And we would all look to Jesus' example lay down our lives when the time comes. In fact, the very act of living our lives as Christians is actually a laying down of our lives. To do the sacrificial thing, to do the servant thing, to act and think and be like Jesus, to be humble and not arrogant, to be thoughtful and not impulsive, to be like him. And as we start this passion of Jesus in the next three, four, five weeks as we go through this, through his trial before Annas, which we'll read about next week, then before Pilate after that, and then his scourging and his crucifixion. Every step at every step, Jesus lays himself down. He lays himself down before the corrupt authorities that stand in front of him and lays down his life before them. The corrupt religious authorities who are committed to maintaining their own political power. and He lays himself down Before these corrupt religious leaders, despite how hatefully they treat him, even though it's only for their own gain, he lays himself down. And before Pilate, when Pilate says things like, what is truth? What is truth? As Jesus had said earlier in the gospel, I am the truth. Jesus lays himself down before the political authorities, lays his life down. Does not lift up his hand in power and might, though he could have. He lays his life down. And then of course he goes to the cross willingly, according to the Gospel of John, laying his life down. Not just before the corrupt religious authorities, not just before the political authorities, but before the whole world. All of the populace and the people who would see him in his shame and nakedness it would nail him up naked before the crowds and leave him there to die. A painful, shameful, hateful death that was excruciating. Laid there to be to be mocked before everyone as they were nailed to the cross, lifted up as a spectacle for everyone to see this is what happens when you cross the authorities. Jesus did that. He chose that. And it is only in Jesus that we can follow that path. It's impossible to follow in our human fleshly nature. It's impossible to follow the dying way. We can't. We don't have the strength or the courage or the hope to follow that path. We need Jesus. We needed Jesus to set us an example of how to do it. And we needed him to provide his spirit so that we would be empowered to do it. Would you join me these next couple weeks as we think about the death of Jesus? Would you reflect on what it cost him? And would you reflect on the fact that he chose to do it? Are there choices we need to be making in our own life to lay down our lives in some way? And yeah, I mean that metaphorically, not necessarily literally. But Jesus is the model who who literally laid down his life. Willingly. And not just willingly like someone else forced it upon him, but, but as an active choice, he chose to do it. Over these next weeks, will you ponder with me about how we can do that in our own lives? How... The Spirit has empowered us to do that. How Jesus showed us how, made a way for us to do that, to follow the path He walked. Let me bless you tonight as we close. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person in this room. Lord, I pray that as we come ever closer to your final moments, Lord, we're already within a day in this text of your crucifixion. Your trial by night and in the morning you see Pilate. And by that evening you're crucified. Lord, would we be moved yet again by the central story of our faith, the defining story of humanity. And the central conviction that every Christian for all of history has had to confess. And that you died on our behalf. That you rose so that we might have life. And that you poured out your spirit so that we could dwell with you forever. Lord, we're grateful for that chain of events that you didn't have to do, you chose to do. We're thankful that your Father planned it. We're thankful that your Holy Spirit gives us that reality, makes it real within us, that we're connected to you because of what you did. And Jesus, we thank you for walking that path, truly walking it out, so that we might in you find salvation. Lord, help us all grapple with the depth of that reality, the pain of that reality, the victory of that reality, and how we too might walk along the same path as Jesus. Help us to do that each and every day, and particularly over these next few weeks as we think about it. In Jesus' name I pray.